Good morning, everyone. And um, obviously, Tim is not here. He's in Nebraska for the Nebraska-Kansas camp meeting. Uh, I'll be leading out today. Um, my first name is Wendell. My last name is Moses, just like in the bull rushes. Okay? remember the last. All right. Please participate, because without that, we won't have very much. Let's begin with prayer. Thank you, dear Jesus, for the opportunity to study your word again. And I pray that as we uh, learn today that you'll be with us, your Holy Spirit will be with us, that we'll understand more about the sanctuary, you being our high priest. Give us um, knowledge and understanding today, we pray. I also pray that you be with uh, this family in Savannah who's lost the mother and the, and the baby. They're grieving so much, and I know that you have lots of uh, arms and um, extended arms as well there in the Savannah Church that will help this family uh, to uh, be under understanding of your love, even though we live in this world today. And so I pray that you be with Tim as he is in a camp meeting. Give him uh, strength and wisdom to uh, share his knowledge about you. And I pray all these things in your name. Amen. So lesson 12, um, the title of the lesson, The Efficacy of His Priestly Ministry. This week we're talking about the heavenly sanctuary and Christ's ministry there. What do you think efficacy means? Did anyone look that up? I mean, I'm not, I'm kind of a word person, you know, and it's like, oh brother, I don't know that word. Um, What does efficacy mean? Value. Webster's Collegiate Dictionary, the power to produce an effect. Effect. What's, you know, the power to produce an effect. What is the effect that we want Christ to produce? That we want Christ to produce in the sanctuary. Okay? And, um, or what do we think he's producing? What's the effect there? Why is he there and what's he doing? What is the effect that God wants to produce? That, that God the Father wants Christ to produce in the sanctuary? And already by that question, you're kind of dividing up the Godhead. You know? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. I looked at the word effective in the dictionary. It says, producing a decided, decisive, or desired effect. So, what would prevent Christ from producing the desired effect? Nothing. Nothing. Our choice. Our choice. Our choice to do what? To be on his side or not. To choose him or not. Okay. Trust him or not. Let's turn to Monday's lesson. The bottom paragraph. Would someone read to me the, the paragraph that starts, Many Christians... Many Christians today are looking toward the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem as a sign of the end. Even if such a temple were rebuilt and sacrifices were resumed, why would such sacrifices have no efficacy in dealing with the sin problem? Not it, necessary. It's not necessary. Okay. Because they're just symbols. Okay, so the, the sacrifices are just symbols. So... In the Old Testament times, or in Christ's time, or whatever, when the Lamb was being offered, did that do anything? The verbiage in the, in the Bible is, and that will be a soothing savor or aroma to the Lord. So this cooking beef, or lamb, or goat, 
or bird, or wheat. Let's see, what, am I missing anything? You know? Oil. Um, so the aroma of these sacrifices was a soothing aroma. For what purpose? For the people only. Because later on, he says, because they continue to do the sacrifices, later on, he says, they stink to me. It's, I, it, I don't even want it anymore. And then it and it had just become a uh, a rote thing that they were doing, and they didn't understand what they were doing. Okay. So when so if they start doing another temple, you know, and who knows if that will ever happen or whatever, and depending upon who, which religious broadcast you listen to, it will determine upon what you believe as far as what's going to be built and when and how it's going to happen, and everything else. But so if a temple were to be rebuilt. And someone were to reinitiate the daily sacrifice. They'd be it, denying Christ was the Messiah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It'd be denying Christ. It would imply, though, that something happened with the sacrifice that we do not understand to be happening. That implies that that sacrifice is changing whom? God. God. Does God need to be changed? Who is estranged in this relationship? We are. We are. Okay? And I think that's critical to our understanding of of what is Christ doing in the sanctuary? Is he changing God? I I picked up a book. I don't know, at camp meeting. It was from not the camp meeting store, but it was from the bookstore that was near door, nearby over in Carolina camp meeting. And it's the tabernacle. It's a whole book on um, the sanctuary service because I had a kind of an interest in that anyway. And um, I decided I'd read the three chapters presented about Christ in the sanctuary. And it was very good. It, you'd think that an Adventist minister was writing this, but it was all about changing God by Christ's presence in the sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary. And so you have to wonder, you know, we have this idea of, of what he's doing. I'd just like to, to um, talk about priests and priesthood and, and what does a priest do. Has the concept of what a priest does changed significantly over time? In the different eras of this world's history that, that we know of. Uh, let's start out with um, priest in the worship of God. Who was the priest? in the situation, and what do they do? Okay, Let's go back to Adam. Before the fall, was there a priest? Adam was a priest, I suppose, for the family. Did Eve need a priest? Didn't need one. Didn't need one. Okay, Because they were talking to God. They were both Bo- talking to God. Both, both were talking to God. Adam and Eve were both having a relationship with God, and so a priest was not required. After the fall, was there a priest? Uh, well, the father. The, the, uh, I'm sorry. He was... He was to function as the head of the home and lead out in worship and so forth. Okay, so, so for Adam's family, Adam was the priest. And eventually all the husbands. Okay, we'll get to them. 
<laughs> okay. So after the fall, Adam was the priest. Okay. And he served in a priestly function for his family. What did he do? What were his, his priestly functions? To offer the sacrifice. Okay. He did offer sacrifices. Did he do anything else in a priestly manner? Well, he led out in the morning and evening worship. Oh, okay. So there's something other than offering dead animals. Hmm. There is an educational or continued thing, an invitational aspect to his ministry of inviting his family to come together in worship morning and evening. Okay? Wasn't he also to serve as a godlike figure? Okay. So if he truly was godlike, let's see, what term did you, what did you say? A godlike figure. But he served mm-hmm. as a godlike figure. And we, we forget that often we pass over the serve part. Okay? That Adam not only offered sacrifices, he led out in his worship, he related his experience. Okay, how long did he live? Almost 900 years. 900 plus years. Okay? So, there were lots of people around before he died. Okay? I mean, how long was it before the flood? Yeah. Not too much longer before the flood. He was there during this whole transpiring of all these people coming into being, forming cities, and his job for 900 plus years, was to act as a priest of the family of God. Okay? All right. Don't want to spend too much time on this. Um, Noah. Who was the priest? He was? Okay. What functions did he do? Were they different than the ones that Adam did? He tried to call them to repentance. Okay. Okay, before the flood, he tried to call people who weren't his family. Okay, he had the responsibility of his three sons and their families and his wife. But he also served a function as priest other than his family. Yes. He had to be doing something because he was 500 years old when his sons were born. 500? Yeah. So you had to be doing something for those first 500 years. Okay. And I'm sure that just in our own lives, our roles change as we, you know, I was married for 17 years before I had kids. And so we have um, pre-kids and post-kids, you know, um, life. And it's much different. You know, the role that I do, what what consumes my time is much different now than it was when I did not have them, or at least should be. Okay? Abraham. In Abraham's life and family and role, who was the priest? Abraham. Abraham? Anybody else? His father. Ah! He had a different priest, though, at at least at one time. Melchizedek. Melchizedek. Okay? So Abraham functioned in his family as priest. He offered sacrifices every place he went. You know, 
just a little aside from this, um, every place he went and camped, he built an altar. Okay? Also, what he did was he named the altar. Whenever anyone came back by, what's this pile of stones here? Oh, that is whatever. And why is that important? Oh, this thing happened in my life whenever that happened. Okay? And it brought remembrances of how God had led him at those times and was with him during those times. And I think we, we do ourselves a disfavor by not having built altars in our memories to go back for remembering. Yes? I was going to say, um, if you go back to Adam, wasn't the uh, idea of a priest also to continue the story Adam knew God, and he told his children, and his children told their children. And these men didn't write anything down. So the whole story, it was to tell the story of what was going to be coming, and what was going to happen in the beginning. So would that be considered, that's considered that, That's a priestly duty, education and whatnot. Okay. In the children of Israel, we have the priesthood, and the priesthood was um, the Levite family and, and whatnot, and so we had Aaron and the priest family, etc. We even had divisions within the Levites. Some got to carry the furniture, some got to serve in the temple. So we had a division of, of priestly duties. You know, when, when Solomon came along, they even had some singing. You know, some were the choir, some were the, the people who served the temple, etc. So we had even further division. But the priesthood changed during that time. The apostolic church, after Christ ascended, was there a priesthood? No. One vote for no. (laughs) Two votes for no. I mean, the apostles, what would they be? Would they be considered messengers and and sort of facilitators, persons that lead out and uh, educate and so on. Okay, so after Christ, you did not have a priesthood, at least for a time, but you had educators, you had conveyor of God's word, you had people who remembered stories of when they walked with Christ, where they had uh, people who led out in their family worship, or their individual worship, we talk about the, the priesthood of the believer. Okay? Of all believers. Of all believers. Okay? And so, we didn't have a priesthood as we think of it, but there were leaders of education and God's word and continuation of God's worship. Okay? Leaders in worship, but we had a priesthood of the believers. You know, individually, we were worshiping God. Okay? Now, somewhere along the line, we'd redeveloped a priesthood because the church in the 1000 AD had priests again. They were called priests. So, in your life, what are the things that you do? Since you are the priest. Study the word. Okay. Study the word. Pray. Pray. Talk to God. Okay. Tell others. Tell others. Especially your children. 
what are the duties that you no longer do that the former priest before Christ's death did? Offer sacrifices, so no more burning of, of uh, little lambs. Anything else that you do not do that the priest did? Well, we do it in a different context. What? The context of the Old Testament sanctuary was symbolic of what we do today. When we serve in the temple, we serve in the, in the, in the priesthood of all believers' temple, the, the temple of Christ, which is made up of individual believers. So we do still minister in the temple, then we just don't have a building temple, per se. Okay. We do have a, we, we've taken the symbolism of the sanctuary, and we now know what the symbols mean in the New Testament church priesthood of believers was represented by singular people in the, in the Old Testament sanctuary. The temple was representative of all believers. So we still have this ministry going on and we're all fit with different, different talents to minister in that temple. And we still offer sacrifices of ourselves, of our heart, of our time, our talents. Okay. So there's different ways of interpreting how the symbols mean to us now or how there's Other than burning of dead animals, what else did the priest do that we no longer do? Was it offering up incense on the altar? Okay, incense. Okay, yes. Appear before God for us. Ah. But that was a two-way representation. Okay. We started out by this by saying that we had grieved parties here. At least one one estranged party. Okay? And the priesthood, one of the jobs was to bring the believer back to God. Okay? So, trying to think of what Christ is doing in the heavenly sanctuary, is he flinging the blood against the curtain? But as far as the functions, the physical functions that a priest did and, and whatnot, or Adam or whatever, you know, he burned, he burned his sacrifice, he killed this animal, he sacrificed it, whatever, and he was trying to commune with God. And part of that process was to bring the repentant sinner closer to God. Okay? And I think sometimes we, we forget the parts of the priesthood and we'd say, okay, priesthood's done. We don't need it anymore. You know? We're talking to God and that's all that's necessary. We still we have multiple functions that the priest did. Education. Yes? Does he not plead our case continually for God? Well, uh, John 16 said, Jesus said, I will not pray the Father for you because the Father himself loves you. So, in one respect, he is not pleading. You know, who's he pleading with? The Holy Spirit? Somebody bigger than God? Is he pleading with us? Is he pleading with us? Come here. Come here. All right. So, he is the ark... And, and here is, this cord is the veil, or whatever, curtain, okay? And he's the priest, okay? Now, during his ministry, 
Okay, walk through the service. The laver and all that sort of stuff is out there. You've already washed your feet and gotten barefoot. Okay? Okay? What are you going to do? If this, okay, out here is the, is the sanctuary. What is your, um, what are you doing? Yeah, I'm thinking. <laughs> anyway, we, we grew up memorizing these little diagrams with all this stuff. Okay, on the right side is a, is a table of showbread. Okay? Over here is the lampstand. Candlesticks. Yeah, whatever you call it, you know. Seven lights. Right in front of you is a altar of incense. Okay? Behind him is the curtain that comes in the front door of the holy place. So he's now standing in the holy place. So as you... Okay, you've gone out there and sacrificed. You have come in the door. What are you doing? What, what is your function? Are you going to sprinkle blood on the altar of incense? Okay. So he's going to sprinkle blood. He's going to take and, and put a little bit of incense on the altar. So the blood smells good. Or something. Okay. And then what's he going to do? Awful prayers. Awful prayers. Okay. The incense was the prayers of the saints. Okay. When John's father, Zechariah, had his duty in the temple. Okay, come here. Come here. Okay, you got to turn around. We're going to walk out here. Okay. Okay, turn around. Okay. So he walked in and had the duty of doing this, the daily sacrifice or whatever, and he disappeared behind the curtain. Okay? And the angel appeared to him and said, you're going to have a son, and he's going to be a great prophet, and he's going to go before the Messiah, claim the day of the Lord. And all that time, he's not doing something. Okay? And the people are where? Out there waiting. Out in the courtyard. Okay? And they got nervous. Because what? They thought he'd been destroyed. Ah, they thought he'd been destroyed. And then his next job was to turn around and go back out and do what? Not sit down. (laughs) What was his job? To give a blessing to the people. He was a representative of God coming out and saying, Well done. You're accepted. God loves you. Okay? And so many times we have in our mind, all we have is the killing of the beasts part of the priest ministry. Okay? We don't have the other parts of the ministry. And if God is in his sanctuary doing what the priest was doing in figure, then he has those roles that we are not doing. Okay? We have to talk to him, but he is talking to us, and he's coming out, and he is... We talk about it. God blessed me today. Right. Okay? And so, I think we, we narrow the priestly ministry to dripping of blood on the curtain. When that was only one little part of his day. Okay? Yes. If we thought he had gone back to heaven and was just a part of the Trinity, and that's all the record we had, I made a note in mine this morning that it, knowing that he has always been the mediator between God the Father and the angels and all that, but that he's there 
and he's real. He hears my prayers this morning, you know, and he cares about me. But I think that it just makes him real and living 2,000 years later. He's doing something. Yes. Okay. Um, in the Adventist church, is it any different than the apostolic church? As far as the priestly ministry? Ooh, maybe, yeah. Is it, or should it be, is what she asks. Is, you know, um, sometimes we do have priests. You know? And um, I think I can speak from a personal basis that I often assume whoever sits in this chair is my priest. You know? And maybe sometimes I do that to Paul or is in front. Suddenly takes the responsibility, but they can only serve certain needs that I have for education and other issues. Okay? When we think of Christ ministering in the sanctuary, what era do we think of? Since 1844? Okay, when you think Christ is in the heavenly sanctuary ministering before the, God, the Father, okay, and whatever that is, okay, how do we, how, what do we think of him? Is he at the Adam stage? Or is he in the Abraham stage? Or is he in the Israeli stage? I mean, the, the children of Israel stage? Or, you know, the reason I'm asking that question is I think often we take something that was written for someone 2,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago or 6,000 years ago and say, yep, that's what it is right now. And they're speaking a totally different language. They're speaking about totally different cultural issues. Things that I have no clue about that I cannot learn by just learning the furniture. You know? I mean, I grew up a Seventh-day Adventist. I learned little parts of furniture since I was small. At various uh, evangelistic meetings they had, you know... Models of the temple and sanctuary and everything else trying to illustrate what we're doing. If you were to take a child of God in walking in the desert before they got to Canaan and ask them about the temple, it would probably be much different than a child of God who was coming to, to Solomon's temple. It was probably somewhat different. And they're still sacrificing animals. Okay? And it was probably somewhat different from a child of God who was in the Herod's temple that Christ came into. Okay? So, anyway, I would, I would like for you to think in your mind about where the priest was and where the high priest was during certain stories that we're going to talk about. Okay? Samuel's mother, Hannah, came to pray at the temple. Where was she praying? The outer court. The outer court. The outer court. Where was the high priest? Holy place. No. Who was the high priest then? Eli. Eli. Where was he? He had to be where she was because she was by. Yeah. He's at the door, guarding the door. Okay. Okay? And she was babbling on and he thought she was drunk. Right? So, what was his function then? I'm not saying that Eli was the best high priest, but, I mean, what was, he, what was the function he was he doing? Guard the door. 
<laughs> education? Maybe. Chastising her. Okay. Um, yeah. David, when he sinned with Bathsheba, and the prophet came, where was the high priest? Nathan. Nathan was then. Okay. Where was he? In, in the temple. Okay. When David came to offer his sacrifice for his sin, where was he? Well, I think Nathan came to the, to the courts of, the, of his uh, palace, didn't he? Okay. The prophet Nathan did, okay, and he came and spoke for God and convicted David of his sin a long ways away from the temple. I don't know how far away it was the temple, but it was, it was more than a few feet, you know. It was light years in, in estrangement, okay? Because David felt really estranged. And Nathan came to seek David out and convict him of his sin and return him to the temple, okay? When David came into the temple to pray, to offer sacrifice, where was he? I wish I had a diagram on the, on the board and I can ask you guys to point him out where he was. Okay? Let's go back to this illustration here. Here's the most holy place. Here's the court. Here's the door into the court. Here's the laver where they washed their feet before they went in barefoot into the temple. And here was the offer of a sacrifice. Okay? And over here was the killing spot. Now, eventually, in Herod's temple, it had a little trickle that went down to the, the Brook Kidron, and the Brook Kidron is even red sometimes because of all the sacrifices they had at Passover. Okay? But there's a killing spot. So, if I, as a sinner, came to the temple to offer my sacrifice, I'd bring my animal into the courtyard. How tall was the curtain in the, in the sanctuary? Head tall, wasn't it? Nine feet. How tall was the sanctuary? 18 feet. Once you went in to God's presence, you were hidden from everyone who wanted to condemn you. You were hidden in God's presence. If you think about this structure here, what did this represent? The lamp, the Holy Spirit, the bread. The bread of life. The altar. Christ. Sacrifice. The ark. God's presence. The whole sanctuary was God. So when I came to the killing spot, I was in God's presence. At that spot. And I walked away from that spot sanctified. Right with God. And when the priest left me to, for me to go out, I was reconciled to God. I had been in God's presence. But what had you done at that time? You had admitted your sin. I had admitted my sin. I had renounced my sin. I had received from the priest, God's representative, a right which was only in in token to remind us of what was going on. 
He was not forgiving me. He was just the care of the, of the, the blood to wherever it went. Okay? Now, he actually ate part of my sacrifice. He was a facilitator. This priest was. Okay? All right. I'm a farmer. I live 60 miles away from Jerusalem. I don't know if any of you have um, lived in a town where you couldn't get to town but every so often. So I'm not going to go in there every time I, I, I yell at my wife or shout at my kids or whatever else, etc. But what is happening in the temple on a daily basis? In the morning, in the evening, there's a sacrifice. And in the morning, I'm going to stop my plow during the hour of sacrifice and worship God. In the evening, I'm going to stop my plow or my herding or my milking or whatever and have my hour of sacrifice knowing that 60 miles away, someone as a priest is helping me think about God every day. Continually. We think of Christ continually ministering before God for us. He's helping me think about Him. Okay? So, anyway. Tuesday's lesson. Uh, someone read the bottom paragraph. Examine the following. We're zooming right along, aren't we? Examine the following key passages from Hebrews as examples of what our uh, Heavenly High Priest does for us. Most important, ask yourself, how can I personally benefit in my walk with the Lord by knowing that Jesus is doing these things for me? How can I apply these promises in my life? Let's look at these, these passages really quick, quickly. Uh, Hebrews 2.18, Hebrews 7.25, Hebrews 8.3, Hebrews 9.11. And now he can help those who are tempted because he himself was tempted and suffered. How does it help you? To know that he has gone through it all. Okay. Is it because God the Father didn't know what sin was like? So that's why he had to become human? You know? At our stage, depending who and where, we might think that. Yeah. We may- Dr. Pravangian, his book says... It helps us to accept his acceptance. Okay. So, you know, at some point in our life, we may feel that God doesn't understand me. Okay. Um, a week or two ago um, on the um, news, there was a, a story about a sergeant German, a soldier from Iraq. He was a victim of a roadside bomb, and he had been in a vehicle that had been carrying gasoline. And um, he was burned over 97% of his body. And they said, okay, he's dead one. You know, I mean, you, you get that much burn, you just don't survive. But they got him to Germany, and he was surviving, and he was kicking, and he was, you know, showing signs of life. They said, hey, let's ship him to the States. So they sent him to the burn center in Texas. And a hundred and something surgeries later, he was still kicking, and, you know, painfully, he, he sat up, and painfully, he took his first steps, and he smuggled some dress blues into the hospital. And when his mom came in to see him... Um, they played music and he danced with her. Now, it wasn't a very good dance, but, you know, and he was an inspiration. And what they found out is if they ever had a tough case that had a burn or had a tough surgery to go through, all they had to do was go by Sergeant 
German's room and say, hey, you know, there's a guy down in room 566 that needs some help. And it was taken care of. Because Sergeant German would go in and talk to them and explain what he'd been through. And there was a bonding of, here's a guy who's been through it all, and he's making it, and by George, I'm going to do that. You know? Now, it's the, the news thing was he had died, and he had, it's a fluke, you know, 107th surgery, something like that. And he went in just for a little, you know, something wrong with the, the skin graft that had been on his chin. And um, he, he died on the table, and it was, you know, everyone was shocked, didn't know why it happened. But, you know, they gave him as an example of someone who really had been through it all, and he related well to others. And that, I think, is how Christ is. He'd been through it all. He's been through worse than I've been ever, ever been through. And I can relate to that. A human being who's, who can, I can approach, and etc. I not be able, may be able to relate to God, but I can relate to, to Christ. Hebrews 7.25, what's that? Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, because he always lives to intercede for them. Okay. What is intercession? Relates. 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 Okay. What do you see him doing? Go between. Okay. An advocate. Okay. Who is he interceding with? Us. Us. See, you guys have all the right answer. Okay. You've been in this class long enough. Okay. Change that word for to with that makes a big difference. Yeah. Um, I don't know if I can do that Greek wise or whatever, but you know, if you read through various translations, it does have a much better. Uh, presentation in some than others, you know. What direction do you see Christ facing? Downward. Ah, see, most people don't have it that way. If here's God the Father, and here's Christ, and here's you, most people have Christ facing this direction. Okay? When really, who's the estranged one? We are. He's turning around. He's facing us. And he said, you know, everything that I hear, I'll tell the Spirit, and the Spirit will tell to you, you know, which direction is he facing? Okay? Does this change God the Father or God the Holy Spirit's outlook of of their interaction with us? Does this intercession change God? No. 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 Okay. He is God. Yeah. (laughs) We kind of divide them up, you know, and... Separate Hebrews 8, 3 through 10. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. And so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest. For there are already men who offer the gifts prescribed by the law. They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one and it is founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. 
But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt, because they did not remain to my covenant, faithful to my covenant, and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. After that time, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. So Christ in his heavenly ministry is a purveyor of a better promise. A new covenant. We have this idea that the old covenant was defective. Who does it say was defective? It was the people. Who said all we will do? Yeah. The people were defective. And so he's providing even a, a, a new covenant in which he puts himself, in essence, in our hearts. Because his law is essentially a transcript of his character. So he's putting himself inside us. <laughs> Hebrews nine eleven through 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? So is the sacrifice of Christ that he's ministering changing God? What's it doing? Changing us. Cleansing us. Getting rid of and it's various translations have it in the more colorful um, verbs. You know, it's, it's great you know, to compare how various things have done. But it's cleansing us. It's not, it's not convincing God that um, we need to be saved. It's, it's cleansing us. It's making a transformation in my mind, my heart, my will. Someone read Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such an high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Okay, so this is the great place, okay? He has a position of power, majesty, you know. Throughout these texts, it's, it's various ways of trying to show us how great a ministry Christ is doing for us. Someone read Hebrews 8.6. But the ministry of Jesus has received a superior to theirs as the covenant, superior to theirs as the covenant, of which the mediator is superior to the old one. It is found better promises. Better promises, better covenant. Often we have our idea of Christ ministering in a heavenly sanctuary just with better robes. 
bigger building. You know, sanctuary in the in the wilderness was fairly small. Okay, then they had Solomon's temple was even bigger and grander. Now Herod's wasn't quite as grand and glorious, but it was bigger. It had a bigger courtyard, could accept more people. Okay, so now we got to heaven, so we can accept thousands. Okay, we got to just have a bigger building, right? No. You know, um, this whole system was set up so we could understand it, not because um, it is different. Well, do you think along that line that that uh, blood was more, of course, much more significant, actual blood, uh, you're a doctor, than it would be today? Uh, would you use blood and transfusions and all that to convey to a, an audience in this day and age? I have read that the life was in the blood, and so it's the life of Christ that is significant. He's read my notes. <laughs> That's where I was going. Because yesterday I did a surgery in which we lost a bit of blood. We use um, sanctified washcloths to absorb blood. None of them got cleaner in that process. They all started out white. They ended up dirty. And nothing got cleaner by the process that we were using with those washcloths. Okay? So the ideas that we use, that Christ is using, trying to help us understand His love for us and His ministry for us, is termed in in vocabulary that applies to the people that He was talking to. Whenever David fought Goliath, how much work did David's brothers or anyone else in that army do to defeat Goliath? None. And yet, what happened as soon as Goliath fell? What did they yell? We won! Okay? So, you're talking about a very Jewish, Middle Eastern, old century concept that by the victor, they were victorious. Okay? The New York Giants defeated the New England Patriots last year in the Super Bowl. Anyone here a Giants fan? Ah, there's a few here. As the Super Bowl is being played, there's these things called high boxes or whatever. They pay a lot of money for, you know, up at the top. You know, you get your own little box where you have your own party. You could see people dancing up and down in there, and yet were they doing anything on the field to win that football game? And yet, when they went home, we won. We won. <laughs> Did they have anything to do with it? None. Not a bit. So it's not that much different. You know, we still have that concept that we have someone, you know, winning for us or whatever. The dream victory that happened whenever the American hockey team in Lake Placid defeated the Soviet Union team, which was essentially a professional team, and they won. Americans all over were jumping up and down, yelling at their TV sets. (laughs) We won. We won. Okay? 
Did they have anything to do? Did they, did they shoot a single shot? Did they skate a single yard on the ice? Did they even get anywhere close to the water? Yes. Okay. Everything you're saying is right, but we participate in economies. And all of the, the sacrifices that had to do with the Old Covenant and the Old Testament and so forth were a part of what we broadly call the Jewish economy. Mm-hmm. And the economy changed, of course, when, when uh, it, we got into the Christian era. And then, of course, it changed once the, the Roman Catholic Church gained predominance. And, of course, the, the economy has changed once, once the uh, Protestant churches have really settled down into their own in these last few centuries. And we now are attempting to further change the economy by saying that all of you people have been participating in an economy that is skewed by your wrong ideas of what's happening with this, not only the priesthood, but with what you think God or the priests or whatever are doing for you. Okay. And so... Essentially, we're participating in an economy that we expect to have some benefit from. That's why we feel that we have won if our ideas have won. I think it goes beyond that, though. I think my assistant at the hospital is a Christian, has been a student at this institution does not believe like I do, that assistant understands a benefit currently, today, as a, as a part of following Christ. Okay? Where my understanding of the priesthood is, I think I have a better understanding and more communion with what God is like than they have, maybe, because of my understanding. Not that I'm any better, but I think that it is a a better picture of who God is. Not saying that they don't have a great relationship with their God, but I think it's an improved way of looking at things. I mentioned that I went to Italy for two months for part of my training, and when I got there, I was horrified to realize that Italians did not want to be Americans. (laughs) <laughs> I figured that as soon as they realized how wonderful America was, they would all want to be Americans, but they don't. There are paradigms in which we work and function and live. And I don't think everyone understands nor wants to understand my paradigm. And yet God is working for them in the sanctuary just as hard as he is for me or Someone else that understands him in a different way. I don't mean to say that all, all roads lead to heaven, because I think that you can become changed by what you believe it to be God to the point where you actually are unfit for heaven. But I do believe that this message has been a benefit to us. I would like to put an assignment for the class. This afternoon, I would like to come up with you Make an analogy to what God is like outside the sanctuary. 
Make a different thing other than a sanctuary. If you're a NASCAR fan, are they all three owners? And then one of, one of the three owners is a crew chief and he comes down and then goes back or to the box or whatever. I mean, whatever. You know, I'd like to make an assignment to, um, to set up an analogy that fits in your life that God would tell you about. Just before we leave, I would like to read some Bible text. Okay? These all talk about intercession. John 16, 25 through 27. I have used examples to illustrate these things. The time is coming when I won't use examples to speak to you. Rather, I will speak to you about the Father in plain words. When that day comes, you will ask for what you want in my name. I'm telling you, I won't have to ask the Father for you. The Father loves you because you have loved me and believe that I came from God. God the Father is interceding in our behalf. You could add to that John 3.16. Hebrews 9.24 Christ didn't go into a holy place made by human hands. He didn't go into a model of the real thing. Instead, he went into heaven to appear in God's presence on our behalf. Christ is interceding on our behalf. Romans 8.31 What can we say about all this? If God is for us, who can be against us? God didn't spare his own son, but handed him over to death for all of us. So he will also give us everything along with him. Who will accuse those whom God has chosen? God has approved of them. Who can condemn them? Christ has died. More importantly, he is brought back to life. Christ has the highest position in heaven. Christ also intercedes for us. What will separate us from the love of Christ as for us? Can trouble, distress, persecution, hunger nakedness, danger, or violent death separate us from His love? As Scripture says, we are being killed all day long because of you. We are thought of as sheep to be slaughtered. The one who loves us gives us an overwhelming victory in all these difficulties. I am convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, which Christ Jesus, our Lord, shows for us. We can't be separated by death or life, by angels or rulers, by anything in the present or anything in the future, by forces or powers in the world above or in the world below, or by anything else in creation. God the Father and God the Son are both portrayed as interceding for us. Romans 8.26 At the same time, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness, because we don't know how to pray for what we need. But the Spirit intercedes along with our groans that cannot be expressed in words. The one who searches our hearts knows what the Spirit has in mind. The Spirit intercedes for God's people the way God wants Him to. The Holy Spirit is interceding for us. Hebrews 7.25, and you can compare it to um, 8.34. That is why He is always able to save those who come to God through Him. He can do this because He always lives and intercedes for them. And that, again, is Christ interceding for us. Hebrews 1.14 What are all the angels? They are spirits sent to serve those who are going to receive salvation. The angels are interceding for us. All of heaven is yelling as hard as they can for us. Cheering us as if they're in the press box. But not only are they up in the press box, but they're here with us. And I think 
this idea of the one part of the Godhead fighting the other part of the Godhead to try to do something, to change the idea, can't anywhere close kind of represent the priesthood of Christ and the Father. Let's bow our heads. Amen. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have given to us. In Hebrews 1.1, you've told us that in many and various ways you've tried to show us who you are. May we honor you. May we be, honor you to those around us. May we see your love for us. May we be transformed by that love. May we be loving to those around us. Forgive us where we have failed. May we honor you on this, your Sabbath, in which you've promised to be with us, to commune with us. Amen. Amen.